Cleaning Up is brought to you by the Liebreich Foundation and the Gilardini Foundation. Hello, my name is Michael Liebreich and this is Cleaning Up. My guest today is Richenda Van Leeuwen. I first met her around 2010 when she was at the UN Foundation building a network of practitioners bringing energy access to people around the developing world. We worked together on sustainable energy for all and also on a project called Project Bow, where we raised money and we built a resilient power supply for a neonatal intensive care unit in Sierra Leone. Richenda is now executive director at the Aspen Network of Development Entrepreneurs. Please welcome Regenda Van Leeuwen to Cleaning Up. So Richenda, great to see you. How are you? I'm doing very well under the circumstances which we're all finding ourselves in. Thank you. How are you, Michael? I'm well, I'm well. Uh, I'm tempted to ask, well, I will ask, what circumstances? Is that the electoral circumstances or the COVID circumstances or something else that we need to know about? Um, I would say all of the above, um, but particularly COVID right now, given that it's, uh, we had the record, sadly, of 130,000 cases here in a single day in the US. And um, my family who are in England, you know, are living under the second shutdown. And I, I gather across Europe, it's, it's just really a really difficult time right now. Yes, it is. It, it is. It's, it's grim. Um, the, the light on the horizon is that it appears that a uh, vaccine will be with us and ought to work. But uh, so fingers crossed for that. But it is uh, certainly grim pretty much uh, around well, Europe and, uh, and certainly in the US right now. Uh, where are you actually calling from? So I am calling from the Washington, D.C. area, actually in Maryland, um, in the U.S. Right. Ma Maryland and, uh, well, that, I mean, which area of the U.S. has not been a battleground in the, in the recent uh, election? Yeah, interestingly, I think Maryland is, is pretty much a blue state, but our yeah. um, governor is a Republican and he, uh, he decided to vote for Ronald Reagan this time. So um, I leave that up to all the viewers to determine uh, how wise that was. When you say he voted for Ronald Reagan, you mean he uh, he wrote in? Quite extraordinary. Well, there are going to be so many weird and strange stories before this is over. Um, hopefully, the result will be robust, the result that's been announced. And um, today, uh, as we film this, um, uh, our PM, Boris Johnson, apparently has spoken to uh, pre uh, President-elect Biden and referred to uh, President Trump as the uh, former president. So we're all terribly excited here. By the time this is aired, you'd have to hope that the uh, result has been formalized. But um, I guess there is the tiny, tiny chance that something else uh, has happened. Um, but I want to uh, let's let's set that aside. We may come back to that and and uh, think about how that might play out in the sort of areas where you've been working. Uh, and perhaps let's take the audience back to when you and I first met and worked together. Uh, you would have been, I think, at the UN Foundation, if I'm not wrong, uh, because it was probably around 2010. It might have been a little bit before then. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to remember as well, Michael, because um, we may have met in, uh, initially when I was still working on the venture capital side and private equity side with Good Energies, um, where I was working from 2006 to 2010. And then um, because of the recession here in the US at that time, um, I moved over to the UN Foundation in 2010. Um, just in the sort of the, the embryonic stage, if you will, of uh, the whole work that became sustainable energy for all. So um, I joined uh, the UN Foundation at the beginning of June in 2010 and very quickly started working with uh, Dr. Yum Keller, Candy Yum Keller, um, Tim Worth, our, our former Senator Tim Worth, our president at the time, and, and others. Um, on the beginnings of the initiative. Um, and I was actually reading and uh, listening to the, uh, the audio that you um, recorded with, with Kande earlier today. And you were reminiscing about the, the meeting in Mexico with Carlos Slim. And, and I remember that very well as well. 
Not so much for the artwork um, that you had mentioned, but more when I arrived in my hotel room, there was a very nice package, a welcome package on my bed, uh, welcoming me with, with two rather nice male um, silk ties. So I have to say my husband was very appreciative of those, but uh, um, I, my gender was, was, uh, was changed for the purpose of that. <laughs> So you've covered an enormous amount of ground there in your opening remarks, and um, but you're you're right. I, I, so first of all, for the for the audience, uh, there is I think it's episode sixteen with Kande Yumkeller is very relevant here because Kande um, was the leader of um, first. Uh, I got to get this right. Unido. That's right. Yes, it was Unido, uh, but then was charged. Um, by the Secretary General of the UN with pulling together all the threads around energy within the UN system. And that became uh, sustainable energy for all. And uh, well, it became, uh, first of all, UN energy and then sustainable energy for all. And now SDG 7 uh, on energy. And that's all explained in uh, episode 16. So uh, if you want to do these things in the right order or in the order of the conversations, then maybe do that one uh, first. But um, but you made a very important point there, hidden in those remarks, that you had spent time with a company called Good Energies. It was a venture investor. They did a lot of investment in solar. But you have a fairly, um, uh, I would say, a, bl a blue ribbon, or I don't know quite what the right wording is, finance, private finance background. The first part of your career was just money-making finance. That was what you did, right? Um, actually, I'm, I'm kind of like a, like a cat with nine lives professionally. So um, the, the, the Good Energies Private Equity life was about life number three or four. Even prior to that, I had worked on microenterprise development for women entrepreneurs among the poorest of the poor with a group called Trickle Up out of New York for a number of years um, and really focused on um, how uh, entrepreneurship can be helping um, very low income people. Um, and then and then the family that had been very supportive of that work um, invited me to come and, and work with them for a while. And, and that then sort of morphed into um, my uh, beginning to work and, and lead the work of good energies in, in emerging markets. So, you know, I've done a lot of um, business school and other um, speeches, you know, for students and things who have sort of said to me, you know, so what was your background that took you into um private equity. And I say, well, I probably have the most eclectic um, background that took me into private finance because no, I didn't work in investment banking and then move over. Um, I actually come from a background of having worked in the humanitarian sector with refugees, of having worked in post-conflict reconstruction in Bosnia and Kosovo, um, and then um, working also on women's micro-entrepreneurship before, before I then moved into yeah. to good energies. So, um, but, but the, the, the solar piece, you know, takes me back to um, a 10-year-old child who, who, who saw solar for the first time um, in Wales on a very rainy day and um, thought at that time at the Center for Alternative Technology, when they'd only just opened their visitor center, this is really cool. This is really interesting. Um, and I kind of kept that over the years. I've always had a, an interest in the environment. Um, and, and so, you know, I've, I've, I've married that at various times of my career with, with a for-profit um, motivation and, and at other times more on the non-profit side. Okay, so I, I have to confess, I thought that you had had a career in sort of banking and then gone into the venture and then into, but, it, but it's actually been much more, you've crossed that barrier a few times. And actually, um, uh, because, you know, where we're going with this is that you are, you know, pretty much the global, you know, great expert on entrepreneurship in um, and, and microfinance and uh, small enterprises that are helping to solve energy access issues in the developing world. Uh, and now I'm, I'm learning that you actually had done some of that um, in the distant, uh, in the more distant past. Um, and of course, just your, your visit as a 10 year old girl to, um, to the Center for Alternative Technologies in Wales, I've been there and it's the most extraordinary thing, is it not? Have you been back since? I, I have not, um, but I did tweet them just recently to say, hey, do you realize that you really, really inspired me way back when? Um, and uh, 
they probably need to change their name by now because I think solar and wind are no longer alternative, um, I, given everything that's I happened. I hate the word but, alternative. I mean, you now have a situation where uh, more than three quarters of all the capital that's flowing into uh, power generating technology around the world is going into wind and solar, and yet they're called alternative. It's like, well, what's alternative about when three quarters of the, of the people are doing it? But that um, that is the Center for Alternative Technologies. Uh, I'm not sure what its Twitter handle is or its URL, but we'll put that in the show notes because it is a truly inspirational place. They have actually kept up pretty well. I mean, their programs, the reports they've written about how you could get to net zero and so on are, are you know, definitely still uh, ahead of their time. And, uh, you know, I, I, it's just this sort of jewel which very few people know about. I didn't find out about it for, I would say, probably I'd been a decade in the sector before I even heard that it existed. So, uh, um, fire that PR person or do something because we, we, you know, it's, it's a fantastic resource. It really is. Yeah, and just, just to say, I probably, I mean, we'll come back to this, I think, a little bit later when we talk about women in renewable energy sector, but I probably would have, have taken a harder science track early on um, as, as that girl, uh, except at the age of 16 when I was doing my O-level physics, my physics teacher said to me at the time, Richenda, you can do physics, but you're too quiet in the class, so I don't recommend that you take it any further. Now, interestingly, he didn't say that to any of the boys at the time. Um, so, you know, I, I hope I hope we're well well beyond that. I mean, in, in the US, um, there's something called Title IX, so I think there would have been litigation involved in that. But, you know, I was a shy 15, 16-year-old, so, so I didn't take physics to A-level, but I have to what say it was... What an but it was with a lot say. of satisfaction um, yeah. that um, in 2012 or 2013, I was invited by Cambridge University to go and give a um, keynote speech on the physics of sustainability, which was all around energy access. So I have to say, eventually, and I don't know if my physics teacher is is still alive, would be watching this, but... But I have to say that there was some feeling of satisfaction to, to be invited to do that presentation eventually. Well, I, I, you know, we have this thing in the UK called the watershed, which is nine o'clock at night. You're not allowed to swear before nine o'clock. Some people will be watching before nine o'clock. So please don't swear at your former uh, physics teacher, although it would be justified. It's also an extraordinary thing to say, because, of course, you know, being good at physics has no correlation whatsoever with being quiet or not quiet. It just seems a... A, a, an extraordinary thing to say. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, women in STEM, and you know, we will. I, I suspect we'll come back to this. That, uh, but that that you know that, that pendulum does seem to be swinging somewhat. There's still a long way to go. Um, but you, so you ended up at the UN Foundation, and you, you, I, 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 I'm trying to remember when we well sort of the exact time when we worked on what became very clearly sustainable energy for all. But there was also this um, practitioner network, the energy access practitioner network that you put together. Uh, and I associate the time when I sort of got to know you, that, that that was your, you know, that was your thing. That was your big project. What was that about? Yeah. So, so that was certainly one of, one of my things. Um, and that was built on the work that I had done at Good Energies. When I was at Good Energies, I mean, I had the best job in the world there because half of me was focused on commercial um, emerging markets, renewable energy transactions. And we were quite early then, you know, but we were at Good Energies. We were putting $500 million a year into solar PV globally. We were the largest global investor in solar PV. But we were looking at things like Run of the River Hydro in India, and I was looking at... Um, uh, biogas digesters in Bangladesh, and we were looking at sort of wind transactions in Chile and, and just all, all over. And it was a great job. The other half of my job was also as a board member of Good Energies Foundation, where we were providing um, grants and soft debt and equity to help um, seed some of the early stage off-grid energy providers that then actually formed the the core of the network of energy access practitioners that became the network um, as, as we built it then into sustainable energy for all, particularly because it, we were seeing that at that time, um, grid extension was seen as sort of the only real way to provide electricity to people who did not have any electricity in, in their communities or their countries. And we were really seeing that actually 
with the economics changing for renewable energy and some pioneers along the way, like Selco, where, where I've been on the board since, uh, since we provided an equity investment into them of 750,000 US dollars uh, while I was at Good Energies. And, this, is and Selco like, in, this is Selco in India, because there's a Selco few Selcos. Yeah. Selco is yeah. in India, a solar electric-like company, which is a pioneer in um, solar home systems um, for... Uh, mostly off-grid families, as well as those with very unreliable grid. Um, and they've really been a pioneer in showcasing how you can um, actually make a business out of it. I mean, they've been profitable since 2007. And they, they were one of the companies that became the core of the Energy Access Practitioner Network, which was really, I would say, it was half half um, advocacy and half therapy group at the time, because there were a lot of people working on solar and other off-grid um, renewable energy solutions around the world. But they were, living, they were working in silos and didn't necessarily have opportunities to, to speak to each other. So I would have a friend who was in Northern Argentina trying to provide the last of the um, solar home systems to mountainous families in Northern Argentina, having the same kind of issues as an entrepreneur in the Philippines but they had no way to connect each other. They didn't, they didn't know about each other and their voice was not really being heard. So part of it was really bringing together this collective voice of the off-grid sector to say, there really is a there there and this needs to be supported and it needs to be recognized and embraced in policy level circles because that there really is this new thing happening. We, we see the economics are supportive now and actually, rather than just looking at grid extension as being the sort of the only way to bring electricity to these off-grid communities, this other work, this off-grid work really needs the support of policymakers. And it also needs the financing behind it to help right. it really take off. And, and the, I mean, the, the, the good energy story is so incredible because they did these investments in solar. Um, they then, some of them uh, went public and, and yeah. a, a few hundred million um, euros of investment became worth, you know, umpty billions. And then of course the whole souffle collapsed and, and, it, and, and it all went a bit pear-shaped, even though I suspect that the, 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 the value was created. But you ended up then uh, at the UN Foundation and you were building this incredible network and resource uh, and one of them, the um, you know, I, I, around that same time, I met. You know, you, you've reminded me, of course, Harish Hande, who is the CEO of Selco uh, India, um, and I would have met him at probably uh, Clinton Global Initiative um, events or or maybe World Economic Forum um, uh, events in in Dubai or Abu Dhabi, and been enormously impressed because he was an incredibly uh, uh, he is an incredibly articulate advocate for this model of off-grid, entrepreneurial, innovative energy provision, is he not? Yeah, ab absolutely. He's also, I mean, he's won the, the Magsaysay Award um, for his work, you know, which is sort of the equivalent of the Asian Nobel Prize. Um, and, and certainly, I think um, the two real pioneers were, were, were Selco in India and then Grameen Shakti in Bangladesh that also... Um, took solar home systems to scale within that country with, with subsidy support from the World Bank, the Norwegian government and, and others, but really showing that it could be done at and scale. Grameen Shakti was Dipal Barua, was it not? And he that's won right, the, that's right. The, the, well, he was one of the early, I think he was the first winner of the Zaid Future Energy Prize. Um, that, that's well, right, in his, in his personal capacity, that, yeah. that's right. I, I, I actually get... sat on, on the selection committee for a number of years for, for the Zaid Prize. So we, we saw a lot of really interesting um, energy access companies come, well, come the... through that prize. One of the problems of um, you know doing having these conversations is that I start to realise just how many people have played such extraordinary leadership roles uh, that I need to get on to cleaning up in future, and certainly uh, they would be on that list, and uh, it would be a pleasure to reconnect with with Harish. So you built this this um, practitioner network, and it was a database, and it was a set of activities around bringing together this um, this group so their voice could be heard. Uh, and, um, and I guess in a way I was doing from a very different platform. I was also, um, just communicating or, you know, providing data on actually how cheap and how functional these technologies, whether it was the off-grid solar or the grid scale solar sort of, you know, trying to not persuade people, but just 
just pointing out, just providing data that they actually worked. Um, and that job is, not, is still not fully done. I mean, there are still people who think that this is all sort of amateurish energy that, is, uh, that doesn't really work, doesn't solve people's problems, and that the only real source of energy is a big centralized power station, even if it has to be coal connected to a grid, even if, frankly, in some of these countries that, that, uh, you're, that you were working in, uh, that might take 30 or 40 years to get a grid to rural uh, Niger or, or rural Ethiopia or rural Mali or, or wherever. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and uh, I mean, I have to say that, that Bloomberg New Energy Finance or New Energy Finance, as you started out, you know, the data the has always been extremely helpful um, in... Uh, um, you know, in providing that 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 sort of data backdrop to help support the arguments that we were making across across the sector, you know, which is the economics have changed. This is viable, but yes, I've had many conversations with senior policymakers in um, a number of different African countries where they've said to me in past years, you know, solar is a vanity. We real we need real energy, and that's also partly because they came up, you know, through the ranks um, and were trained in. Um, uh, coal and, and oil and gas. And so I think it, it, it also is a reflection of, of, um, of a mindset, you know, that, that we've, we've had to sort of crack and, and change the mindset, um, even as the economics were, were showing the way. I mean, even today in, um, across sub-Saharan Africa, according to um, the International Energy Agency, I think um, we are only at about six gigawatts of solar now in 2018. Now that's still way more than the 300 megawatts we had back in 20, 2011. So, you know, there has been a sea change, but it's still only about 1% of the installed capacity. So, um, you know, we've still got a long way to go there and, and a long way we can go. I mean, there are some great, um, I would say low hanging fruit opportunities, not even just looking at grids, but in um, Nigeria, in fact, the, the number of um, small gasoline generators that, that are in use, the collective capacity of them um, is around 42 gigawatts, which is eight times the installed capacity of the grid. Now, you know, if you're looking at it from a capex standpoint of just the cost of the, the generator versus the cost of a solar system of equal capacity, then you'd say, okay, solar doesn't make sense. But if you're factoring in the OPEX, and if you've got some patient capital that doesn't mind, you know, that it's going to be, that it's going to be a return over a number of years, then, you know, you look at the, the, the OPEX and it takes maybe seven or eight years, and, and it'll be less than that, you know, very soon to, to show that actually over time it makes sense. And then, of course, you have the other externalities in terms of the, the lack of pollution, the lack of toxic uh, fumes, um, that that makes sense. So there, there are other areas as yep. well. I have to say there's there's a, a group I want to give a shout out to called A2EI, the Access to Energy Institute, where both Rachel Kite and I serve on the advisory board. And they've just been doing a lot of really interesting data crunching um, to showcase, you know, what can be done um, in terms of helping to bring in renewable energy solutions in countries like Nigeria. Well, and um, so Rachel was our uh, was a guest on episode two, and to that point about Nigeria very specifically, this evening, which you won't have seen because it's just going live, just premiering now, uh, episode um, I'm going to say eighteen. Um, is with um, Nancy Fund and one of her investors. She's, of course, the preeminent venture investor, um, maybe of her time since she was early into Tesla, but certainly uh, one of the highest profile women venture capitalists uh, in, 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 uh, ever. Uh, one of her investors in something that used to be called Off Grid Electric, I believe, and is now renamed, I think it might be called Solar. Zero. Or something. Zola, yeah. Zola, Zola. There we go, Zola. And, um, and Zola is focusing on replace those diesel generators with Nigeria as a focus. And she talks about it in the episode. Um, that trip that you mentioned down to Mexico, I think it was in 2008, um, that was my first real exposure to, uh, to, to Kande, um, probably the first time that we got to hang out. And, and we were there as guests of Carlos Slim. He was at the time the wealthiest man in the world. He was worth some $50 billion, which of course now doesn't, you know, doesn't get you in the top, you know, however many. And I remember the ties 
um, which also appeared in my, um, in my hotel room. Um, there were two ties laid out on the uh, package very nicely in the bed. And one of them, silk ties, one of them had ice cream cones on it, I remember. And the other one had little telephones because, of course, he was the, the that was the, the foundation of his fortune um, was telephones. I don't know why the ice cream cones, but I remember. Uh, and we then went into these meetings with this artwork on, on, the, on the wall. And I remember this. I remember um, there was a meeting. Carlos Slim was in the meeting. We were talking about energy access, the issues that you've just been talking about. And there came a point where he sort of clicked his fingers and they rolled a video. And it was the Carlos Slim something something foundation had been doing energy access with very poor um, indigenous Mexican women in the villages. And, you know, it was a very dramatic, very moving images, these very poor women uh, and, and how they were sort of feeding sticks into the fire. And then they ended up with a cook stove and they ended up with some lighting. And, uh, and this was the work. And I was thinking, you're worth 50 billion. Can't you just spend a couple of billion and just solve this problem instead of sort of, you know, spending a few tens or whatever it was that he spent. I, you know, I, di I didn't want to sort of be, I didn't want to be the person who says, excuse me, I'm just not impressed. But there was a, there was an element of, you know, the sort of, I don't know what, um, you can get very cynical being around some of these kind of, um, you know, moonshot messiah billionaire types who are not doing the work that you've done on the ground. Uh, or am I, this, uh, do you ever feel that or am I being excessively cynical here? No, I, I mean, I think um, to put a more optimistic spin on it, just to say that I'm really pleased that the Rockefeller Foundation has come out in the last week or so and actually made a billion dollar commitment towards energy access and particularly, you know, they're throwing their lot in with helping to support um, uh, a lot more mini grids, um, renewable energy mini grids across Africa. And so, you know, I, I, I do see the role of, of the large commitments um, and I think it's, it's really helpful. But, but the one caution I would say, and this is something I've talked about with the team at Rockefeller Foundation is it's not only about the connections, you know, we've, we've got, we can use these big numbers that we've come down from about 1.2 billion people lacking electricity to about between eight and 900 million today. So yes, we've made progress, but it's not just about those connections and, and, and you and I, um, Michael, having worked on, on the electrification and health side, we'll probably come back to this. It's really about, how you can tie the availability of that electricity to help solve other developmental development issues. So it's about, you know, it's about the education that a child can get from being able to study under um, lighting in the evening. It's about being able to provide modern healthcare. It's about also um, being able to use the electricity as a catalyst for new types of business activity, which is kind of where I'm working now. You know, I'm, I'm, I've just changed recently, job, changed jobs recently, and I'm not specifically working on the energy piece, although we have some um, engagement with that. I'm working much more on the entrepreneurial ecosystems because I do see that there's still something of a disconnect at times between the... Um, the, the provision of the, the energy and, and the actual um, catalyst that, that then happens in the local economy. And even, even in the off-grid sector, we are seeing that most of the large companies right now are actually still international companies and not domestic companies because they are finding it easier to get the, the capital. So um, the Global Off-Grid Lighting Association, uh, which, which has been you know, a real... Um, a uh, very valuable industry association for a number of the of the companies in the off-grid sector um, came out with a report in October that said, you know, there were really the, the three largest transactions were all of international companies, groups like Greenlight Planet that that came to see me back in 2008 when they were just a little idea sort of starting out. Um, and, and not the local companies. So, you know, I think that's one of the things where we need to look at how to make sure that local entrepreneurship is being spurred, that the, the benefits are going into those local economies. And while, you know, Nancy's terrific and, and I love Nancy and, and, you know, the work she's done at DBL, DBL Investors, 
um, you know, we want to make sure that local shareholders are getting those benefits and not not just people in the Bay Area. So so we have work to do there and really looking at um, how how are we supporting those management teams? Are they getting the access to capital? Um, are they getting the right kind of support? And where I am right now at the Aspen Network of Development Entrepreneurs, we've been doing a lot of um, data gathering around acceleration initiatives. And we've actually found, we have something called GALI, which is a global accelerator learning initiative. And some of the results from that have actually shown that at times acceleration can increase the gap between male-led and women-led enterprises, for example, which is kind of disturbing. Um, and also that um, it tends to be that male-led enterprises uh, have an easier time getting access to equity, whereas women-led enterprises tend to be able to access debt instead. So, you know, there are some areas where we still see some systemic challenges that are not exclusive to the energy sector, but certainly affect the, the off-grid energy sector as well. Let's try and come back to the issues around gender and um, the, the equity of equity provision, if you want, the, the issue you've just raised there. Because um, um, I want to just touch on a couple of other things on the way there, and I, I, I rest assured we will get there. Um, one is um, that you've raised a, a very important um, uh, sort of trend that I see happening, not just in the uh, energy access space, which is the focus shifting from energy from the supply side of energy provision to what is the job that the energy does what are the energy services and um you know one place that i see that is just the discussion about primary energy versus final energy or energy uh, usable energy um in the kind of statistics game because every time people talk about primary energy they're talking about the, the biggest thing is coal because it's so damn inefficient that primary energy is mainly made up of thermal waste in coal and gas and uh, and, and nuclear power and uh, and frankly also oil because most of it doesn't go into turning the wheels of the transport. So we're now starting finally to focus on well, what is it we need in the economy? And I think in the developing the access space, the analogous trend is we start to say how do we make sure that the vaccines stay cold? How do we make sure that the babies have uh, oxygen? How do we make sure um, that the sewing machines aren't down for six hours a day? And so it's much more of a sort of goal focused. And of course, it, it's probably more complex from your perspective, because now you don't just worry about the electricity piece, you've actually got to think about entrepreneurs and supply chains and, and cultural issues around uh, what sorts of jobs people take and so on. Is it more complicated? Am I characterizing it rightly? No, absolutely. And I think the thing is also the question of who's doing that work. So, um, you know, at Rocky Mountain Institute, when uh, where I was um, and, until uh, September, um, you know, we were doing a lot of work on mini grids in Nigeria and really showcasing some of the cost reductions that you can get to to make a commercially viable mini grid and working very closely with the Rural Electrification Agency of, of the government of Nigeria, where um, the current head of, of Sustainable Energy for All, um, Damilola Ugambia, used to be the head of of yeah. of, uh, of of RIA, and and one of the things you know that that we were discussing within within the team at RMI was that the mini grid companies themselves, you know, they are concerned more about having anchor customers who can really make the mini grid commercially viable. They are not really the ones who are necessarily thinking about is there, is there equity in the community? Do the women um, entrepreneurs get the electricity the same way that the other entrepreneurs do? Um, are we actually maximizing the community benefit from being able to really spur local economic development through the use of this electricity? So that's not necessarily something that can go on the balance sheet of the mini grid provider who is just desperately trying to to have a commercially viable business which is which is where we have this sort of wraparound ecosystem services that need to come into play working hand in hand with the electrification to say okay well do local entrepreneurs have access to capital to be able to grow their businesses even if there is that opportunity where do they get that from 
Are the local banks lending? Are there microfinance institutions? Yeah. You know, where where do they go for that level of support? I always thought that um, the the single thing that that whole sort of mini grid sector could do to um, to, to sort of straighten out a number of pieces of the, of the puzzle is to start calling themselves mini utilities um, or micro utilities because. Um, then it suddenly you start to think, okay, well, really the business is all about credit. The business is about finding those anchor customers. The business is about customer service. It's about connections. It's about collecting the money. Because when you call it a mini grid, immediately to me, it's a bunch of sort of electrical engineers deciding how many you know, kilowatt hours of batteries to balance the solar. That's really not the difficult bit, is it? No, that, that, that's right. I mean, I mean, I think... Depending on where you're working, it can be a little bit more difficult than than maybe you know in in one place than than another. But um, I think the challenge has been that that mini grids have been in, indeed regulated like mini utilities, um, and that's been part of the challenge as well. Yeah. You know, we have we have these great regulations in in some countries, and I know some of the people you know at the World Bank and other places have have developed these regulations, and on paper they look fantastic. You know, sort of very. Um, uh, conducive environment to being able to to develop mini grids and then it doesn't happen in practice you know so it's it but they are they are very much more regulated than a solar home system provider right. so so one of the questions has been you know um in different regulatory environments in fact for small for these smaller mini grids um that you might want to call micro utilities rather than mini utilities should they actually be subject to the right. same level of regulation as the larger ones, which are indeed more, more like that mini utility, that um, right, just because of the challenges that then come into play? Yes, of course, because as soon as you call it a mini utility or a micro utility, you're more likely to get an allergic reaction from what's very often a state um, monopoly utility who's suddenly going to, you know, but, but I mean, they already see it, I think it's quite a, quite a threat to their core business. Although you sort of say, well, you know, if you're not going to be able to reach these communities for 20, 30, 40 years, stand back, you know, lead or get out the way. Is, is, it must be tempting to say that. Yeah. I mean, the, the other way is is in some places, One so one place where RMI has been working in, again, in Nigeria, is actually looking at the mini grid as a way to help with addressing instability of the main grid. So what RMI had deemed um, undergrid mini grids, which is basically having um, a grid-tied mini-grid that can help with, with addressing the insufficiency of the main grid. So, you know, I think, I think there, are, there are different ways to, right. to come at this one. Yeah. But I, I think the challenge has been for a lot of the smaller mini-grids is that they've had that level, that increased level of regulation, um, but they're also not, not every country has um, a very clear policy environment. So some of them are sort of working in a gray zone and so the investors don't have that clarity that they need to really be able to say, what's the investment proposition here? And can we, you know, can we really see a way to having a, a, a return? And so it's still, it's still in play. It's still being worked out. Obviously, COVID has, has had an effect as well. And, and certainly the, the African Mini Grid Developers Association has been leaning hard on some of the development financiers to try and get additional levels of subsidy because, um, you know, they they have been in, in a difficult situation, as has much of the off-grid um, sector. In fact, there, there have been a number of calls to sort of try and put in some kind of um, energy access relief fund. And yeah. there's a, a group out of New York called SEMA Funds that have been um, putting together a, a relief fund for yeah. the off-grid sector, just because so many customers have had issues with payment, like you know we have with people struggling to pay their utility bills here in, in, in the US and probably in other parts of the world yeah. as well. Um, and, and so, you know, I think, I think right now in COVID, it's, it's very difficult for a lot of people, but uh, moving on through, I, I do see a pathway to, um, to lower cost um, mini grids, as I say, you know, with whether it's through Rockefeller Foundation or through, through other work um, well, that can really help to catalyze yeah. more enterprise. And, and let's, let's talk about one mini grid um, that uh, you and I know well. Um, and I think that, you know, it does uh, follow on from that discussion about, well, you know, you, you, the stability of the grid. Um, uh, to the, late 2017, I saw this tweet from a doctor 
in who was working, he'd set up a neonatal intensive care unit in Sierra Leone in a city called Bo. And the tweet said last night, three of our babies died uh, because of a power cut. And really that should no longer happen uh, in this world where there's solar power and whatever. And so I, uh, I was at a fancy pants uh, dinner when I was on my way to a dinner, um, actually with the Taoiseach of Ireland when I saw that tweet. And, uh, and I thought that should not happen. And the first person I called, I have to say, was you, because I knew that you would know somebody in Sierra Leone who could actually install a mini grid. And in fact, you know, you, you did. And, and that, was, um, uh, that was energy for opportunity. Um, do you, so talk, talk, talk through the, the, um, that little project. Um, what did, if you, if you can describe it and from you know, your perspective, what did it achieve? How does it sit with then the sort of energy access for healthcare, bigger trends that you're working on? No, I mean, I have to say, first of all, a big thank you, Michael, for, for having taken that on board, because you could have just gone to your dinner, you know, you could have just said that's so sad and then, and then moved on. Um, and, and, you know, this is an area that I would say has not received enough attention, the whole nexus between the provision of modern healthcare services and, you know, what, what to me seems, you know, to use a, a kind of crass term, a no-brainer, which is how, you know, given so much of what we deliver in terms of modern healthcare is electricity dependent, how, how on earth do you expect with the best doctors and nurses in the world, them to be able to deliver healthcare without having electricity? I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's so basic. It's, it's, almost, it's almost like a human right right now, I would say. I mean, I, I would actually say it, it is. Um, so, so, yeah, um, the, the fact that um, a lot of health clinics, not only in Sierra Leone, but in other countries as well, um, do not have either any electricity or uh, insufficient electricity, or they're working on, and I've seen a lot of these as well, uh, they have diesel gensets that um, oftentimes, maybe during the rainy season, the roads are out and they can't get the diesel into the clinic, or they only have a certain allotment of diesel per month. And the governance may be a little bit um, shaky around the edges in some places, so that diesel may not go to them in the first place. So there are so many reasons why, in fact, um, renewable energy solutions are appropriate in a rural healthcare setting. And I have to credit the World Health Organization, which has, has uh, been critiqued by some of, of late uh, uh, here in the US, but really for their work that they've done around looking at provision of energy services in, um, in, in low, uh, low energy provision healthcare contexts and have really worked hard to showcase um, the value of, of, of solar power um, and energy storage combined with all of your other energy efficiency measures like making sure you're using LED lights and, and so on. And also really beginning to look at um, the appliances that we use and lower wattage appliances, because you know I've been to places where you see these lovely big donations of a, an x-ray machine and it's been developed with um, a stable grid and a sort of limitless grid in mind. And they sit and rust in the corner and maybe use for storage or you know shelving to put something on because, because it's just so um, unsuited for the context. So, um, I mean, this wasn't, as, as we worked through this project, it wasn't always easy, um, you know, just to get that size and that scope, um, the, the design elements right, the sourcing, you know, we looked at um, bringing in some other batteries, you know, and we were saying initially we wanted to bring in some um, newer chemistry batteries, you know, that are less toxic than, than some of the older chemistries, but then they hadn't been tested in, in the Sierra Leonean context. And, you know, so we ended up going with lead acid batteries just because they are tried and true and they're known and people know how to repair them. And so, you know, I think it was a very interesting process just to really look at how we could optimize the, the solution set. And then, and then of course, um, tying it into the oxygen concentrators, which needed that uh, reliable power to be able to um, provide the oxygen to the babies. And, and that one, you know, I'm almost got chills going up my spine as we say that because of the, the need that the massive need that we've seen for oxygen 
um, during COVID. So, no. um, no, I mean, for me, that project was a real education because it's one thing to sit there and say, okay, solar, the cost is this and a mini grid should work and batteries, the cost is this completely different picture when you say, okay, let's go install some. And obviously sitting in London, I didn't actually install and you didn't from DC, from uh, Maryland, but, um, the, the sorts of, of issues that we needed to deal with. I mean, everything, first of all, for me, that project really brought home the fact that energy access, just being able to tick some list and say this village or this town has got energy access. If you have a power cut and you're a, a, a baby on uh, a ventilator, you don't have that, then uh, that is not a power supply unless it's a resilient power supply. So there were learnings around that. UNICEF who gave the ventilators, I mean, bless them, they'd given this equipment, but as you say, if, if you haven't got anywhere to plug it in, that's res the, and the equipment was worth about $15,000 and we ended up having to raise um, over 100,000 and it ended up spending about $120,000 on the power supply for $15,000 worth of equipment. So there's, there's so many learnings. And I, rather than list them here, what I will say is that there was, uh, you'll remember, I wrote them up. I wrote a, an article yeah. on um, the sort of 10 lessons, five for anybody who wants to do a project like that, and five for the kind of the community of which we're part. Uh, and I remember that we sort of knocked that article around a bit uh, and you had input before it was published. So we'll add a link into that. Um, but then, so then you've got, during the time of COVID, of course, we're going to need, you know, diagnostics. We're going to need, I mean, apparently this vaccine needs to be chilled to minus 70 for delivery. So, uh, you know, I, I hope you're ready with your practitioners out there um, to play their part in getting these solutions out to, to where they're going to be needed. Well, the practitioners have become part of sustainable energy for all. So, you know, I would say over to Damilola to really make sure that um, that they are getting that message loud and clear. But we did see it, you know, we saw this during Ebola as well. Um, when I remember with Andy Herskovitz, who was the head of Power Africa under USAID at the time, you know, we were putting out a call for urgent support for health clinics that could be um, on the, that were on the front lines of, of Ebola that still needed the energy. And of course the challenge there was, how do you then safely provide that energy to a clinic that's also working with, um, you know, with, with Ebola patients. And, and I was in Liberia just as um, Ebola was coming across the border actually with, with the now Minister of Health, Patrice Dan. And, um, you know, I remember her saying to me in Monrovia, you know, we've, we've got Ebola at our borders and neither she nor I knew that actually Ebola was already there in, in Monrovia at that time. Um, but the, the challenge is, and I would say this is probably true, you know, for a lot of humanitarian work, which is that, you know, the old adage about if it bleeds, it leads in journalism, is that we seem to be having to learn these lessons again and again. Um, even across India, there's something like as many as 25% of clinics that do not have um, reliable electricity. Um, Selco and Selco Foundation, which is the nonprofit spin-off from Selco Company, have been doing a lot of great work with the government of India on, on sort of developing um, mobile COVID testing clinics that are powered by uh, solar, even, even uh, mobile um, barges powered by solar that, that are providing um, uh, you know, solar powered medical services into remote areas. And so I think this is just a message that we, we need to continue to, to keep coming back to, which is, you can't deliver modern healthcare services without electricity. No. And, and uh, you know, I, th I think um, we, we just need to make sure that, that we, we continue to, to beat that drum because, um, I mean, the, 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 to me, the most satisfying thing for, for Project Bow was to learn that actually the number of neonatal, um, uh, you know, infants, newborns coming into that unit was increasing because and they had another problem, which was that they had an increased number of mothers coming to the center right. because they actually saw that the babies were surviving. And then the mothers were getting malaria because they had to sleep outdoors. So, you know, there's still more work to be done. You solve one issue and you've, you've got another one that you need to solve. But um, I, I think you may remember that I was actually bedridden with a broken leg for much of the time that we were working on Project Bow. And, you know, I'd had 
I had two surgeries on my leg. I'd broken my ankle in my in my front garden and um and and had two surgeries on it, of course with electricity. And it just really brought it home to me that we are, you know, we're so privileged, we're so blessed in, in taking it for granted. And I, I want other people to be able to take electricity for granted in their own community. And so not having to worry about um, whether their child, whether their newborn will have the, the medical services that they need. Well, that's right. And I, I remember a conversation um, with Simon from, um, from Energy for Opportunity, where the first design that he came back with was, um, I just did, you know, use my, the, the vestiges of my engineering background and calculate. And I said, but, but Simon, this battery and this solar, surely it's not big enough to operate the thing 24 seven. And he said, well, but that would be really expensive if it was there 24 seven. And I said, look, I want these mothers, these babies to have the same resilient electricity supply as they would have in Canada, where he was from, or in London, where I was. And he said, oh, okay, well, in that case, I'll have to come back with another design. There was just this assumption that somehow worse was acceptable. Uh, and, and, you know, he's a, he's a good guy. He was, this was not, it was just, it was just uh, a mindset. Uh, yeah, and, and I've, I've seen not, that across. I've seen that across. And... I've seen that across the sector, Michael. You know, I so appreciated your your pushing him on that because I've seen so many times when people have sort of said, and I've heard World Bank people, and I and I've done a lot of great work with the bank, so it's not an indictment of them, but literally say, well, I've got a million dollars here, so if I divide a million dollars by a hundred clinics, you know, each clinic gets this amount, rather than actually starting and saying, okay, holistically what kind of medical services are being provided here? What does it need, both in terms of electricity and clean water and hot water, um, and then actually do a system design on the basis of, of the electricity needs to provide those kinds of health services. And that was an approach at the UN Foundation that we were really supporting. And I have to say, I'm, I'm glad that the UK government, um, together with UNOPS, has been continuing to work on uh, electrification of health centers in Sierra Leone, um, taking forward some of the work that we were doing at the UN Foundation at that time, but got disrupted by Ebola back in 2015. And I hope they read the, uh, the our article on the lessons to learn because you know I was not able. We we had the privilege of a lot of well networked, wealthy friends who uh, and we raised the money, we crowdsourced and we funded it. But it was purely charitable. There was no business model. Uh, but equally, I've not been able to devote myself to doing another. You know, there's probably we, we probably need to do three hundred thousand project bows, and then we might be getting somewhere. Um, but I want to talk about also cooking. Because um, uh, in, in, it, that's something that never gets the same attention. It's something that you have um, been deeply involved in, and that is clean cookstoves. Because, of course, um, you quite rightly pointed out that uh, electricity, you've now got to the point where there's only somewhere between 800 million, 900 million people without electricity in the world. The lowest number, by the way, that there has been since the, uh, the invention of the, of, of the electricity generator. Um, but for clean cooking, it's about two and a half billion, I think. And that means there's two and a half billion people that are still, you know, eating food cooked using wood, using charcoal and using animal dung. And that seems like a much harder problem. What, what, are, the, what are the solutions? How do we, how do we uh, accelerate that? Because, you know, 2030, SDG 7, 2030, they're supposed to have modern energy services. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's also, I mean, it's a great question and it's a tough one um, because I think the, the focus for many years was, and you mentioned cookstoves and there was a global alliance for clean cookstoves. And I think initially there was a, focused very much on, on the, the cook stove um, and sort of trying to make, you know, trying to build a better mousetrap rather than actually looking at the fuels um, and starting from the standpoint of, of what are the best fuels. And we don't yet have, for, for people that don't have access to grid electricity and, and even more to access to affordable grid electricity, you know, we don't have a really great renew, completely renewable fuel option yet. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I've, I ended up working for a couple of years with the Global LPG Partnership, because even though it's a fossil fuel, um, it actually, from a health standpoint and a climate standpoint, surprisingly, 
is still much better than um, traditional wood and charcoal because it reduces the black carbon particulates that, that they produce that kill um, nearly 4 million people prematurely right. every year. Now, that being said, that's not the end of the story. I mean, governments like the government of India have, um, through their Ojwala program, have provided about 50 million LPG connections to women and communities over the last couple of years. Um, we're really trying to make it ubiquitous in rural areas. That's still, you know, that's still a work in progress. I think in parallel to that, there's been a lot of focus um, on the increased use of ethanol for clean cooking. And certainly um, there's some companies in, in, uh, in Kenya that are, that are working on those value chains, but they've been a bit difficult to scale. Yeah. And I think the scalability issue is there. And then the third area that I do think um, provides a lot of promise is when you are looking at um, electricity, is some of the improved appliances that are now coming into um, much more use. I mean, we've got induction stoves, of course, here in, in, in the US and I'm sure in, in the UK um, by now as well. But I'm talking more about things like electric pressure cookers. You know, the, the Instapot here in, in the US was a massive hit. Um, and we can use some of these lower wattage appliances and, and really focus on making sure there are quality appliances available in those markets for um, increasing the amount of um, use of electricity for cooking. Because when you are decreasing the cooking time, even if electricity is still expensive per kilowatt hour, you know, if you're able to use a pressure cooker and you're decreasing the cooking time, then you're not using so much of that electricity. And then also looking at being able to put, put more of these appliances onto mini grids, as I said. So um, RMI is, is testing some of these uh, electric uh, cooking appliances um, through a DFID funded initiative out of the University of Loughborough called the Modern Energy Cooking Services, which is sort of an R&D initiative, really looking at how we can be moving the cooking sector forward. Now, I would love to say that we have a magic bullet solution that is going to solve all dif difficulties in this sector. It hasn't been that easy. It's, I don't think it, it, it still will be that easy. Um, clearly, national action by, by governments um, really, really helps. So I think the government of India having, having made a whole scale intervention, uh, even though it was partly uh, government led, partly private sector led, um, you know, certainly was very helpful. Um, we've seen that level of commitment from, from some governments like the government of Rwanda that, that is also really um, uh, you know, taking on board uh, approaches to addressing clean cooking. Um, but we have to look at it through the sort of the whole, the whole sector change as well. Um, so you can't just look at it as sort of saying, well, you know, we want to support these women-led enterprises at the last mile, that, that's helpful and they need that support. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of support you can give to those, to those enterprises, but you really need to look across the whole value chain. So whether if you're looking at, at the electricity side, you know, you're looking at the fact that the cost of generation in uh, Rwanda is, I think it's about 35, 36 kilowatt cents per, hour, uh, cents per kilowatt hour, but it's sold to the public at something like 32. So the utility is losing money with every kilowatt hour it sells of electricity. And that's still yeah. expensive enough that unless you're sort of middle income in Rwanda, it puts it out of reach. So, you know, we've, we've got to look at it more holistically. And initially, the electricity and the clean cooking sectors were just not, not talking and not interacting. And I have to say, you know, I've been so pleased to see in the last couple of years that they've come together more to really look at holistic solutions. Right. And, and there's just one other um, sort of, in terms of the, um, those who are cooking using wood and charcoal and so on, there's also the security issue, isn't there? Of having, you know, women having to go out and collect firewood that are also very vulnerable. And, and I think just sort of to, 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 to log all the reasons why you need to solve this, that also surely has to be pretty high up there. Yeah, I mean that that's that's absolutely right. And then and then there's also looking at it from the um, perspective of those people whose livelihood depends on on charcoal. And yeah. when I first started working with women micro entrepreneurs, I, I was doing a lot of work in Haiti. And 
um, one of the things that really struck me at the time, and, and I didn't have a solution for at that time, was that in Port-au-Prince, if you were um, a, uh, one of the poorest of the poor women, the only way that you could start a business that would feed your family with the profits in your business on day one was with a charcoal business. Charcoal, yes. Yeah. And that was back in 2001. So here's, so you here's know, and the question. We, I promised we'd get back to the gender issues. And actually, they've sort of surfaced a number of points. But the question, and we, you know, we're running a little short on time. So the question is, is there a time, a sort of sunlit uplands, where girls, in your case, you said I think you were 16 at the time, but where girls are studying STEM like it's just no big deal, where they're fully included in the venture industry in the, you know, in the West or wherever that is, where they are uh, as involved in um, the, the finance, mainstream finance. They're also as have the same access to uh, equity, to debt um, throughout the developing world where you know, gender doesn't just come up again and again and again through these discussions. You know, is there is there light at the end of the tunnel? Is there a sunlit upland that you can see? Or are we just going to spend the rest of our careers really coming up against the same issues again and again? I don't, you know, I don't I'm, say we, I'm, I don't mean, because obviously I, I come at them not as a woman, I come at, you know, I've been working on these same issues, as you know, uh, to the greatest extent of my, of my capability. So um, are we going to get there? We're already getting there. I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic. So, you know, we we started with the U.S. election. We have a vice president elect who is a, a, a woman of, of color. You know, she's African-American. She's Indian-American. She will be a tremendous role model to help girls say, OK, I can be vice president. I think, you know, I as I say, I was giving a a. Uh, a talk to my alma mater, which is the University of Durham, um, uh, to their environmental sustainability group, which is a student-led group that has just been started in the last few months. Um, and I was really impressed with the, the young women and, and the young men, you know, in terms of their thoughts around their careers, their optimism, and the kind of things that they've already been doing that I have to say, you know, were not options available to me and, and I'm not that old, you know, so, so I see there's been, there's been progress. And I guess I've always lived my career as if those challenges didn't exist, as if we had equality and then just sort of worked with, with others to make sure it, it gets to happen. And then behind the scenes done a lot of peddling, you know, I've, I have to say, you know, there, there are those in the off-grid sector that heard me many times, um, you know, just, uh, uh, behind the scenes say to them how come you know your mission says that we're helping solve energy access for women and girls and then I look at your senior management team and there's not a woman on there and I look at your you know your investors and all of your board members and it's all guys you know and I said look maybe you've been able to get away with this so far but you're not going to get away with it for very long and you know I think we've, we've done a lot of work behind the scenes to sort of try and write those things um, to help the next generations not have to to fight, they'll fight other battles, but not have to fight these ones. So I'm, I'm actually really optimistic. I've been very involved with the C3E initiative here in the US, which is all about mentoring younger women in the renewable energy sector. It came out of the Clean Energy Ministerial sure. and it's been massively successful. And I think, you know, yes, we don't have 50-50 men and women yet in the renewable energy sector, but it's increasing. And I think there are many pathways now that women see that they can make their careers in the sector. So I'm, I'm encouraged. Yeah. And I could probably, uh, one could probably put uh, precise numbers on it, but you know, my sense is that uh, if you go back to that sort of 2010, when we first started working together, probably there was something like 10 or 15% of, of women, maybe 50, you know, 15% would have been a, a, you know, a good mix at any um, vaguely mainstream energy conference. You know, if it wasn't specifically about cook stoves, it would have been about 15% women. Uh, and, and now I think it's sort of around the kind of 25 to 40%, let's say, probably 25 to 35% mark. Uh, and it needs to be 50-50 and it should be not remarkable and we shouldn't be having this conversation. And I think uh, I certainly speak for myself and I'm, I'm sure I speak for you as well. We're not going to stop until it is. 
So um, yeah, I mean, the downside, the perverse downside in a way is that when I used to go back to the Renewable Energy Finance Forum uh, conferences on Wall Street, you know, back in 2007, 2008, there'd be a room of 300 men and about three or four of us women. So I have to say it made networking quite easy because we'd all be looking out for each other. But uh, it's great, you know, it's great that you don't necessarily know all of the others in the room now. um, And I think that's the way it should be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good. Very good. Well, look, thank you so much for spending a bit of time uh, with me here uh, on cleaning up. It's a great pleasure to catch up with you. I've no doubt that our paths will cross again shortly. There'll be some crazy project that we can work on together. Uh, And I wish you uh, all the best of luck in your new role at the Aspen Network. Thank you very much, Michael, and stay safe and and may your family stay well as well. Thank you. Thanks, Richenda. God bless. Bye-bye. So that was Richenda Van Leeuwen, who has spent her career working on bringing energy, both electricity and clean cooking, to people in the developing world with a particular focus on women and entrepreneurship. My guest next week on Cleaning Up is Claude Turm. He's the Minister for Energy and Spatial Planning in Luxembourg, but until recently, he was an MEP and In that role, he was one of the leading voices for the environment and also for renewable energy in Europe. He has worked on countless pieces of legislation. Very often, his arguments have won through. And so the shape of the EU's energy policy and environmental policy owes a lot to Claude Thurmes.